Have you ever um, worked hard at preparing something and planning for it, put your time and energy into it, only to have it turn out to be incredibly different from what you hoped and unbelievably disappointing, and there is nothing you can do about it? That ever happened to you? How do you feel when that happens? You've hoped, you planned, you prepared, and then it just turns out really different. Well, if you've ever had that experience, you can identify with Philippians, with Paul. Let me share with you what Paul said to the church at Rome. He wrote them years before this letter was written, the letter that we're going to look at. And he said this to the church at Rome in Romans 15. He said, but now there is no more place for me to work in these regions. And since I've been longing for many years to visit you, I plan to do so when I go to Spain. I hope to see you while passing through and have you assist me on my journey there. And after I've enjoyed your company for a while, he says. Well, guess what? Paul finally made it to Rome, but not the way he planned. He got to Rome all right, but you remember how he got there? Here's what he said. I'm looking forward to being with you all. I'll enjoy your company for a while, and then at my leisure, I'll head on out and go on to Spain and continue my work. How'd that turn out? You remember how Paul got to Rome? He's a prisoner. And when he got to Rome... The way it worked in the Roman society, unless you were in a high-level prison, you had to rent your own house. And you had to provide for yourself and maybe even for the guards who were assigned to take care of you. And so whenever we go on our annual trip to Rome, we don't always get to do this because it's not always open. But we try to. We try to take everyone who goes with us on our trip to the house where Paul lived for two years while he was in Rome. It's, uh, it's now underground because in Rome, when you go under the ground, you go back in time because Rome is built on top of itself so many times. We're not always able to go there because Paul's house is not always open. It's a, um, it's a, um, uh, it's underneath a not so wealthy church and it's just not always open. And, but when I go there, every time I do, I asked myself this question, what was Paul thinking about when he was in this house for two years? Here's the good news, I don't have to wonder because he wrote down what he was thinking. He wrote Ephesians, he wrote Colossians, he wrote Philemon, and he wrote Philippians while he was in that house. And so we usually pause and read selections from what Paul had to say while he was in prison under house arrest in Rome. One of the things he chose to do was to write the church at Philippi. And so what we're going to do for the month of August is we're going to shift gears. First of all, congratulate yourself. You made it through Ecclesiastes. Good job, y'all. Man, I'm proud of you. So good. Now we're in Philippians. And our theme for August, remember we're still in the rewords, 
Our theme for August is rejoice. Isn't that an interesting term to choose to ascribe to a letter that Paul wrote from prison in the midst of his disappointment? And yet, it's appropriate because of what Paul had to say and the perspective that Paul shared in this letter. So, come back tonight and we're going to explore all that a lot more deeply about how Paul got there, the context of this letter, and we'll make our way through this letter uh, meticulously over these next three Sunday nights. So this morning, I want us to begin this examination on Sunday mornings underneath this heading, the power of the gospel. And I want us to look at Philippians 1, and we'll just look at verses 3 through 6. So Paul's in Rome under house arrest, being guarded by these Roman soldiers, awaiting his trial, unsure of his future, waiting on Nero to decide what to do with Paul. Not able to go and travel, not able to go to Spain, not able to fulfill all of his plans, but instead his entire future and his life is in the hands of pagans. And so he writes this letter to this church at Philippi. Timothy's with him, so you find that in the opening where Paul shares that offers his typical words of greeting. And then he shares this, beginning in verse 3. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Now, We know that when Paul wrote this letter, he did not write this letter in English. Paul was a learned man. Paul was fluent, we believe, in at least three languages. Paul could write in Greek. He could write in Aramaic. He could write in Latin. He chose, under the leadership and the inspiration of the Spirit of God, to write his letters that we have in the New Testament in Greek. And when you read this letter in Greek, it's interesting, sometimes it... It reveals the complexity of Paul's thought. Some people have interesting ideas about Paul's letters. I'm not sure your take on how Paul wrote these letters. Some people act like Paul was just walking around with with a secretary and he would just say, hey, write this down. That's not how it was. This, This is a learned man. And so even though he had people who assisted him, what he had to say was well thought out, well intentioned, And he was very meticulous in his communication, has a broad vocabulary. And sometimes the complexity of his thought is is revealed when you try to study it in the language in which it was written. Here's an example of it. Verses 3 through 6 that we just read in English is all just one sentence in Greek. So Paul does that often. He writes these long, complex sentences that really challenge you to try to figure out what he's actually saying. The task of the translator is to try to put his thought into the language that we can understand. So you'll notice verses 3 through 6 in English is actually several sentences in one paragraph. But in the Greek text, it's just one sentence. And it has one indicative verb. Paul says, I thank my God. All the rest of, these, uh, of this text is either a participial phrase, a prepositional phrase rather, or a group of participles. The actual verb is, I thank my God. That's the message from Paul. Now, what I want us to do is is look at the reason why 
Paul was so thankful. Okay, that'll get us to our message today. But before we do that, let's do a real quick vocabulary lesson. Okay, what do these words mean? There are some key words just in this opening small paragraph that you and I need to make sure we understand what they mean because they are clues to understanding the rest of this letter. So let's look at those real quickly. First of all, there's the word joy. Well, what does the word joy mean? Paul says in verse 4, I thank my God, he says. Or verse 3, rather. I thank my God in my prayers, he says, with joy. Well, the word joy is a, in the New Testament, it is a deep and abiding sense of the presence of God that transcends all circumstances. Now, joy it's interesting, in this, this particular letter from Paul, remember he's in prison, in Rome, under house arrest. This word joy, or a derivative of it, rejoice, is found 16 times in this short letter. This is the letter of joy. It's a very warm letter, filled with joy, in spite of the uncertainty of Paul's circumstances. 16 times we hear him say a word about rejoicing. Now, Joy in the New Testament, it is connected to circumstances. There are things that can happen to you that bring you joy. That's true. But the joy that we discover in Christ is even deeper than that. It's not dependent upon circumstances. It can be connected to them but not dependent upon them. And so here's Paul in prison and he says, I'm thanking my God and I'm doing it with great joy. Now, I I would just tell y'all, I have lived in America for a long time. In fact, I've lived my entire life in America. I would tell y'all, this is about as unhappy as I have ever seen our nation in my lifetime. I just feel it. I've been traveling all over recently. And you know what I've noticed about Americans? We are jumpy right now. And if you don't think we're jumpy, just intersect one controversial topic in any conversation and just see how jumpy everybody is. I'm telling you right now, you can divide a table conversation in a second. We're just jumpy. We just seem unhappy. Well, you know what? Turns out I'm right. Research is bearing that out. There is actually a research entity called the General Social Society. They have been taking the pulse of Americans since 1972, and they have a standard test where they are testing just how happy Americans are. 50 years of testing Americans. You know what they've discovered? Right now, 2022, we are less happy than we've ever been in the last 50 years, according to their research. Because they ask questions like this Are you very happy? Are you happy? Are you not too happy? For the first time in 50 years, the Americans who say that they're not too happy now outnumber those who are very happy. It's the first time it's ever happened. Now, why is that? Why are Americans so unhappy? Well, I don't know that we can decide that definitively. Is it the pandemic? Is it isolation? Uh, Is it uh, uncertainty? There are many factors, I'm sure. So I guess what I would say to y'all is, 
If there has ever been a time when we needed just some good, old-fashioned, biblical joy, it's right now. And guess what? You and I as Christians, we have access to it. Paul had it. In spite of his uncertainty, he had it. And you and I can have it as well. So we're going to talk more about it, particularly on Sunday nights as we're studying this book. Second word, partnership. You'll see that word in this text. Paul says, I'm, as I'm praying, I'm praying with joy because of your partnership, he says. Now, the Greek word underneath that is a word that many of you have heard before. It's koinonia. It is a shared commitment to sharing the gospel. It's our word for fellowship, for community, if you will. But this is an active partnership. It, it's rooted in shared values. Yes, the Philippian church had some shared values with Paul. Paul said, I'm, I'm, I'm so grateful for our partnership. So, yes, they had a partnership. However, it's more than just shared values, more than just attitudes. When Paul uses this word here, what he means is he's grateful that these people have shown him, they have demonstrated to him that they are partners with him. They've done it through concrete action. So, for example, flip over to uh, Philippians 4, if you still have your Bibles open, and look at verse 18. Paul says, I've received full payment. I've got more than enough. I'm amply supplied. He's in Rome now. And remember, while he's in Rome, he's got to provide for himself and for the people that are there with him. But he has no job. He's in prison. He's in chains. He says, I'm amply supplied now that I've received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. They're a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. In other words, Epaphroditus has come from Philippi. He's traveled 700 miles to Rome. He's walked. It's like walking from Birmingham to Arlington, except you have to cross the sea to actually get from Philippi to Rome. And he's brought a gift to Paul. In other words, this church has not just told Paul, hey, man, we're with you. Man, we believe in you. They've demonstrated it. And Paul says, I'm thanking my God for your partnership. Then the word gospel. Nine times in Philippians, Paul uses this word. Six times on the very first page, the word gospel. What is the gospel? It is this incredibly good news that culminates in the person and the work of Christ. When Paul uses the word gospel, it's a holistic word. It, it means something to Paul. It's, it's God's great plan of redemption. It's his healing and transforming work in the life of an individual person, in your life, in my life, in the lives of these Philippians. But it is also the power of God at work in his creation. God is redeeming. He is restoring and he is rescuing all that's been lost and all that was broken through the fall of humanity. And the gospel is God's work. The gospel is God's idea. We participate in the gospel, but the gospel is God's work. And you and I greatly benefit from it. Paul says, I'm grateful for your partnership in the gospel. And then finally, one other term, the day of Christ Jesus. You see that in verse 6? Now Paul will use that phrase three times. In Philippians, the day of Christ Jesus. What is that? Well, that is the final day of redemption and judgment. Paul is one of the men, as a writer of the New Testament, that has helped us understand our calendar. 
Paul is one of the men who's helped us understand that there are two ages. There's this present age, this present evil age, and there's the age to come. And Paul is one of the writers who's helped us understand that the age to come has already begun. Jesus initiated the age to come. So you and I, as Christians, we've been uniquely designed by God to live in the age to come, even though we're still in this present evil age. And so they overlap. They intersect. And so we live in this present age, but you and I are already participating in the age to come. Jesus inaugurated the age to come when he came to this world the first time. Paul realizes he has a keen sense of the calendar, and Paul knows this. One day, Jesus is going to return, and when Jesus returns, this age to come will culminate in his return, and it will be a day of judgment and redemption. And so Paul says, here's what's next on the calendar. It's going to be the day of Christ Jesus when he returns. And when he returns this time, he will not come as a baby in Bethlehem. He will return as the King of kings and the Lord of lords and the judge and the Redeemer. And so Paul points us to that, the day of Christ Jesus. Now with that said, let's look at why Paul expresses his deep heartfelt gratitude. Two reasons in this text. There's two things Paul says, I thank my God. I thank my God for this. First of all, it's the partnership in the gospel. Now, as I said, that Greek word is koinonia. It means to, means to participate in a concerted, sacrificial effort together. It doesn't mean just that, uh, that you care about somebody, that you believe in what they're doing. It means that you participate in what they're doing. You, you sacrifice for it. You, you give yourself to it. It becomes your cause. And so Paul says, I'm so grateful for that. So again, look back at Philippians 4 again real quickly. Look at verse uh, 14. Paul says, yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. In other words, you've shared suffering with me. Moreover, he says in verse 15, chapter 4, as you Philippians know in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, that's where Philippi is, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you. You're the only one. Even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid more than once when I was in need. Not that I desire your gifts. What I desire is that more be credited to your account. I've received full payment. I've got more than enough. I'm amply supplied. Certainly now that I've received the gift from Epaphroditus that you sent. It's a fragrant offering. So in other words, Paul says, you have partnered with me. But they haven't just partnered with him, y'all. They've partnered with him in the gospel. The Philippians. This church is a true partner with the Apostle Paul. Because Paul's life was given to taking the gospel and the reality of the gospel to the world. This church came alongside him and joined him. See, here, here's the thing. I mean, they even sent him a gift in Rome. They're true partners. Here, here's what Paul is, is reminding us of. We actually need each other. We work better together than we do when we're in isolation. God has designed us to be together. You see, that's what the church is. There are people who have false understandings of the church. What is the church? Well, the church is the gathered community of the people of God. And we don't just gather just to gather. 
Some people look at the church, they say, oh, yeah, the church, that's just about, they're just the perfect people. They're all the self-righteous people. They're, they're the ones that judge us, and they're always mad at us. That's how they view the church. Well, and there's a reason some people view the church that way. But that's not what the church is. People say, oh, the church is full of perfect people. The church is not full of perfect people. So if you're a guest this morning and you're perfect, do not join this church. We will mess you up. <laughs> okay? Because there's not a perfect one here. We're not perfect. That's not who we are. We're the people of God who've admitted that we're not perfect, and we're on a journey of being transformed by the power of Jesus Christ in our lives, and we're gathered together for the mission of God. That's who we are. And you know what? We're better together than we are by ourselves. My goodness, y'all, seriously. Put us off by ourselves. I mean, just, just isolate us. We're capable of anything. Get us off by ourselves. You can get somebody by themselves enough. Seriously. That's not good. Um, y'all probably seen these little experiments. Maybe you have where they, they get the little kid in the room and they give him the marshmallow. Have y'all seen those? You need to watch those on YouTube. And the, and the lady or the man says, hey, okay, here's the deal. I gotta go. I'll be right back in just a minute. And if you won't eat that marshmallow while I'm gone, when we come back, I'll give you another marshmallow. Y'all ever seen these? They're hilarious. That little kid, all of them, they'll sit there and they'll just look at it. Look around. They'll, you know, kind of flick at it. They'll pick it up and pull it apart. Next thing they'll, they'll just eat it. They just can't help themselves. Okay. Well, in, back in 1920, a researcher decided to redo the experiment with cookies with two kids. So the researcher would get the two kids together. They'd play a little game together just to make sure they knew each other. And then the researcher would do this. Each kid sitting in a chair, and he'd put a cookie, or he, he or she, in front of each child. Say, okay, I'm giving both of y'all a cookie. Now, here in a minute when I come back, if neither one of y'all has eaten your cookie, both of you get another cookie. Now, y'all need to go watch that because the little kids will sit there looking. One of them will go, and hey, don't touch your cookie, man, because I'm going to get another. You don't eat your cookie. I'm not going to eat my cookie. And when that lady gets back, we both get another cookie. And guess what? They didn't eat the cookies. What is it about being together? You see, when you're accountable to somebody, when, when all of a sudden you're not just in there by yourself trusting your own devices, you can be better. That's how it works, y'all. God has cause you to be born again into a family. Um, while, I was, while I was doing some research, while I was away, I, I, was, I was doing a little research for this sermon. I came across this guy. You probably have heard. Some of you may have heard of him. I don't know if you have or not. He does TED Talks. His name is Peter Skillman. He's been to Stanford, California, University of Tokyo. And here's his experiment. He puts people into groups of four. And he, here's the test. Let, let me get this right. He gives them... Okay, here it is. He gives them 20 pieces of uncooked spaghetti, one yard of tape, one yard of string, and a marshmallow. And you have a time limit, and here's your job. Build the tallest structure you can build, and the only rule is the marshmallow has to be on top. And build as tall a structure as you can. Are y'all with me? 20 pieces of uncooked spaghetti, one yard of tape, one yard of string, and a marshmallow. Here are the teams. Everywhere he went, he built the same teams. CEOs, lawyers, business graduate students, and kindergartners. Those are the teams. Okay. The CEOs, average, after he finished his experiment, the average group of four CEOs, 22 inches. The lawyers, 
15 inches. The college students, 10 inches. The kindergartners, 26 inches. The kindergartners won. It's fascinating to watch it. Y'all need to go watch it. The, the CEOs will be in the room and one of them will say, well, let's do that. No, I don't need that. No, you, that, no, no, don't do that. If you do that, we're, no, well, then do this. The lawyers, the, the students, all of them do the same thing. The kindergartens, they don't even talk. They just start working, start building. Yeah, that's good. Good job. Next thing you know, they build the tallest structure. My point is, y'all, this ain't rocket science to do stuff together. <laughs> even kindergartners can do it. And we're about something way more important than building something out of spaghetti and string and marshmallows. We're partnering for the gospel. And Paul says, when I'm, I'm sitting here in prison in Rome, I've got an uncertain future. I have no idea what Nero's going to do. He's crazy. Who knows what he's going to do? I have no idea if I have any future or not. But here's what I'm doing right now today. I'm thanking my God for you and our partnership in the gospel. And then he says... And it's the power of the gospel that he's grateful for. What does Paul say? He says, look, I'm 700 miles away from you. I can't get to you. I can't hug you. I can't, I can't check on you. He says, but I'm going to tell you something. I'm confident. And you know what I'm confident in? The gospel and its power. As a matter of fact, I'm confident that the gospel will have its way in your life and you will be complete when Jesus comes back. That's what Paul says. That's how much confidence he has in the gospel. He says the gospel's powerful. What is the gospel? Well, it's this incredibly good news. It's, it's this story. It's the story, if you will. You know, last year, while I was away in July, I was doing some research, um, planning for this year, and I came across this book, Telling a Better Story. And I read through it a little bit last year. I've read through it again this July because it is going to have a big impact on us in 2023 because we're going to be discussing telling a better story in 2023. That's just a little commercial for you. Josh Chatrow is his name. Here's what he says. He says, story is powerful. Every culture has a story. He says, you know, there are some ancient cultures that didn't have a wheel, but they all have a story. And guess what Christians have? He says, we have a better story, and we need to tell it. I came across this quote from Richard Powers, his novelist. He says, the best arguments in the world won't change a single person's mind. The only thing that can do that is a good story. The power of story. Well, guess what the gospel is? It's a really good story. But here's what I want you all to know this morning. It's more in the story, though. You know, the gospel, it's a great story. But the gospel is power. It's spiritual power. You know what Paul said in Romans 1? He said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God that leads to salvation to everyone who believes. That means the gospel is powerful in your life. And when you are willing to receive it and believe it, it will change your life. It will change your eternity. It's through accepting the gospel. Your sins can be forgiven. And you can be rescued from hell. And you can be rescued from an insignificant life. And you can be rescued from yourself and from a selfish way of living. And you can be delivered and you can be redeemed and you can be reformed and transformed so that you can live the life God wants you to live and get you ready for the age to come. That's the gospel. It's powerful. It is, it's a great story, but I'm here to tell you, it's, it's spiritual power. You know, Jesus trusted it. 
Jesus trusted it. Jesus, in Mark 4, one of my favorite parables, Jesus said, you know what the gospel is? He, he called it the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is the manifestation of the gospel. Jesus said, you know what it's like? It's like a farmer who sows his seed in the field, and whether he stays up all night or whether he goes to sleep, automaton is the Greek word. All by itself, the, the seed will grow grain. In other words, Jesus says the gospel's like that. You sow the gospel seed, and guess what it'll do? It'll produce fruit. You know, years ago, I was pastor at country church, Mertens, Texas. I didn't know anything about farming. These are all farmers. Knew nothing about it. We had a guy in the, in the church named Dwayne Watson. He told me one day, he said, Preacher, I'm going to come by your house early one morning. I'm going to bang on the door. And when I do, get up and come with me. Don't take a shower. Don't take time. I need you right then. I said, Okay. So one morning, sure enough, Dwayne bangs on the door. I jump up. I tell Cindy, I says, Dwayne Watson, I got to go. I go jump in the truck. still dark outside. We start driving. He has, I don't know, several thousand acre farm, big cotton farmer. We drive out, get to the knob of this little hill. He just parks the truck and just sits there. Doesn't say anything. And I'm like, interesting. Out here in the dark, early in the morning. And Dwayne looked at me and said, just wait. Here in a minute, y'all, the sun came up. And when the sun came up, Dwayne's field just turned green. He looked at me and he said, I've been waiting on this cotton to top that ground. I knew today was the day, and I just want to share it with my pastor. This old rugged farmer, little old tear. I sat there in a holy moment. An old pickup truck on a dirt road. And you know what I thought about? I thought about what Jesus said. You put the seed in the ground and you trust me. That cotton seed's powerful. Matter of fact, you plant it, guess what it's going to do? It's going to top the ground. Can you imagine what the gospel seed does? It'll change your life. It'll change your eternity. It'll rescue you. Paul said, you know, I'm sitting here in this prison. Man, I'm so glad the gospel's powerful. I'm so glad I can think about you and thank God because I know the gospel is at work in you and I know that it's going to bear fruit in your life. He began a good work in you. He's going to bring it to completion. Here's what I want you all to know this morning. It's not just how it works in your life. It is that. But the gospel is even more powerful than that. You see, the seeds of the gospel being planted by the people of God, even in our society and in our culture and in our world. You know what Paul said about that in Colossians 1? He said, this gospel is bearing fruit all over the world. You know why? Because it's good, that's why. You can trust the seed of the gospel. It's about the individual, but it's also about the whole world. So let me, let me close by saying this to y'all this morning. While I've been away from y'all and uh, been thinking about you and praying for you, this text has become very personal for me because I've been praying for y'all. And you know what I've done? Every time I thought about you, I thanked my God for you. And I thanked God for our partnership in the gospel. See, that's what we have. And I hope you know it. But just in case you don't, let me tell you about it. We're partners. You see, I'm the preacher. I'm, I'm the pastor here. And I have a role to play. And that means I'm going to preach. Now, I realize these last few weeks I've had people preaching, but I'm just telling y'all that's just a thing for just a little bit of time. I'm the preacher in this church, okay? As somebody asked me a while back, you going to get a teaching pastor? I said, I have no idea what that is. What is that? And they said, you know, somebody preaches for you. I said, no. I'm the preacher. 
I will preach in my church until y'all run me off. So that's just how it is. I'm going to pastor, shepherd, cast vision, teach and preach the word of God. That's my job. I'm your shepherd. I'm going to love you and bless you and be a part of your life. And I'm going to proclaim the truth to you as long as the Lord allows it. But you, see, I'm partnered with you. And guess, guess who you are? See, you're the church. And so you participate. You invest. See, you, God's given you gifts. He, he's given you abilities. He's given you talents. He's given you interests. He's given you passions. And see, what you do is you invest them here in this church and in this community. You, you volunteer. You're teaching those Sunday school classes. You're, you're taking care of those children. You're serving on those committees. You're, you're making sure that this particular event happens because you show up. And you, you show up for worship. And you come to those classes and you take, uh, you take your part and your role and you participate. And you use your gifts that God has given you and you invest them through the life of this church. See, that's your job. That's what God's designed you to do. You take some of that and live it out in this community. And then you also give. You give money. You don't give your money to the church. You give your money through the church. Because you see, God has called all of us to give some of what we have back to him because it's all his in the first place. And we give back. And as we give, guess what? Then it's those resources that you give that God takes them and he pulls all that together. Those resources, those finances that we give, that we entrust to the Lord. And then these leaders in this church, we have people who are leaders who have been serving the Lord a long time, who serve in positions of leadership. They're doing their job to help us make decisions. And then you have this staff. What an incredibly talented and gifted staff we have. And this staff here is at work. See, they're working caring for people. We have what we call our care ministry. Katie oversees that along with me. We're shepherding our congregation. We partner with our deacons, with other lay leaders and staff members to make sure that we take care of our people. We shepherd them. We walk with them. We have others who are in the content ministry. It's their job to help provide spiritual formation so that our people can be shaped and formed and changed because we want people to understand the mission of God. We have those who are in the coordination ministry. It's their job to take care of our finances and our facilities and make sure that we're able to schedule things and things work and they take care of their stewards. They take care of what God has entrusted to us. You put all of them together. You put this staff together and then I come along as the pastor and the preacher and the leader and the one that casts vision and together we are so much better than we are when we're by ourselves. And this church, my goodness, become a part of this church and now all of a sudden you're a part of a global network of ministry because you see when you become a part of this church and, and you start helping and shepherding and caring and teaching and volunteering and serving and leading and giving, my goodness, you become a part of something you could have never imagined on your own. See, your hands, right? Your hands. Do you know where they are? Your hands this summer. They've been in Slovenia. You know, you have supported our work with our workers there. They live there. They're our people. They live there. You support them. You support the people that have gone to help take care of them and work and minister. 
a camp this summer with kids who've never been a part of anything Christian, anything evangelistic, evangelical. Guess what? They were there. You sent four interns from this church to live there for a month at a time, putting their foot in the water, testing, seeing, is God calling me to mission? Is this something God wants me to do? You made that happen. Lives have been touched and changed. You're in, you're in Western Europe. You're working with migrant families who come from a completely different religious background. And you've got people who are in our church who live there, and we serve alongside them. You're in Sierra Leone. Gabe and Seda, of course, are our representatives there. But you are connected there. Your hands are in Sierra Leone. You're touching the lives of people every single day. Do you know this next month, this next month, Pastor Emmanuel, who's our primary church planting partner in Sierra Leone, you help support him. Your ministries are connected to him and all that he is. You know, this next month, he's going out to the villages again. You know why? He's got to go baptize 500 new believers this next month. Your hands. That's where your hands are. And we have another ministry we've started that, that is secure. So we have to be careful to even talk about it. But it's touching the lives of real people who need the gospel. We've had teams down on the border. They've just been there in McAllen, church members, helping to take care of people who are in very vulnerable situations. This summer, all over this community through Mission Arlington, the gospel has been shared in apartment complex after apartment complex. Your hands have been all over this city touching the lives of people because you see, here's the deal, y'all. We are in partnership together for the sake of the gospel. You know why? For our credit, no, because we believe in the power of the gospel. That's why. And it's our hope and our desire to help everybody in this world be ready for the day of Christ Jesus. That's why we're here. And that partnership, y'all, come on. Now that partnership matters. And you may think this little bitty bit that I'm doing doesn't matter. Seriously, that little bit that you do and that little bit that you do and that little bit that you do, that little bit that I do, put it all together. And it's a whole lot. And it can change the world. So when I've been away from you, I've been thanking my God for the partnership in the gospel and the power of this gospel. And may you and I live to see the fruit of it. May it be so.